0: Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsola.pro/aoiaas. Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game. Perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM 8 bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM 8 bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at IM8bit.com.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Adam Orth. Welcome to a special edition of the Game Maker's Notebook from Reykjavik, Iceland. Today I'm speaking with Christian Segerstrale, CEO of Super Evil Megacorp. In this episode, we discuss his journey into the industry through early mobile games and being on the cusp of emerging platforms, joining and becoming CEO of Super Evil Megacorp, the company's unique remote first practices and methodologies, and his passion and efforts around climate change and how the game industry can come together to be a positive force for change. Hope you enjoy. Hey Christian, welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. Coming from Reykjavik, Iceland. Thank you. Are, delighted to be here. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Good. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Uh, we've got a bunch of stuff to go through, um, but I wanted to um, give our listeners an opportunity to understand a little bit about your history through games, how you started. You know, I've got all the notes of what you've done and. Obviously, I've, I'm familiar with what you've done, but maybe for our listeners, you could go through a little bit of your journey in games and to where you are now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's quite a journey. I think I just looked at it. This is my 23rd year of building game companies, which is a long time, right?
1: I'm pretty close to that, too. Yeah, it's 22 or 23.
2: But I guess, I mean, to, just to take it back a little further, I, I grew up playing games in the sort of Commodore 64. Era, I grew up learning to make games. I really enjoyed learning programming. Early on, I was going to study computer science and, you know, I didn't know if I was, you know, I didn't even really know if, if there was such a thing as a game industry, but certainly computers was like a big thing for me growing up. I then got sidetracked. I actually ended up uh, discovering economics as a subject. And I thought, hey, here's like a programming language for society. like you could just program the interest rates and the tax rates and these sorts of things correctly and have a good set of laws and like, you know, figure all this out, you could like create an operating system for the economy that where everybody's happy, you know, it just leads to good outcomes, like game balancing sort of. So I ended up kind of enamored with that idea and ended up doing my undergrad in economics and a postgrad in economics. And only after that did I it actually dawn on me that this mental model is entirely wrong. Economics is not a programming language for societies. At best, a half-functioning tools that sometimes work to deliver outcomes. But so after that, I ran home to mummy and my first love of tech, and ended up in a tech startup in London. This is in two thousand. Yeah, here two thousand.
1: Macrospace.
2: And yeah, this is macros. Actually, not macrospace. There was actually before that a company called Digital Mobility, okay, which made browsers, the very first browsers for mobile phones. And this notion that, hey, you could access the internet on your mobile phone, I mean, that's pretty crazy. And also worked in some of the very, very foundational technologies to do with being able to download something from the internet onto the phone and run it with using Java to micro edition as sure. was the, you know, the virtual machine at the time. And that startup was a, uh, quite, a, uh, quite a revelation in lots of ways for me. Um, I was brought in as the head of product management Like, that was my offer letter that was going to be the head of product management. I literally had no idea what product management was. And I think there's a little, you know, the young, arrogant me went, well, I can clearly figure this out. They think I'm good enough, so I can, you know, I, I can do this. Uh, whereas I think it should probably be a bit of a warning sign, you know, to people that if a company hires you to do a job that you truly don't know how to do and they are enthusiastic about it, you should probably ask more questions about the company yeah. you know, at that point. I've but been hey, there I, a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I had a, but I had a wonderful time there for about a year, really having a headache every day at just absorbing technologies and absorbing how, um, sort of getting a really ground-level ground view of how mobile technology is likely to evolve. And as a result, even though that startup ended up in trouble, I very quickly left together with the person who had headed the application development team and, you know, a, a senior engineer to go, hey, how about we kind of set up our own company and just try to do this stuff but kind of do it well, right? <laughs> actually. You know, kind of promise a thing and then deliver on that thing uh, and kind of stay focused and try to do that. And as a result, we started off by writing delivery software for mobile applications. So this idea of, hey, if you're a network operator and you want to run your own, which is now called app stores, but back then portals to download games, then how would you do that? And we can we can say, hey, you know what? We can do that for you. We can We can kind of manage this download portal for you. And then quickly we realized, hey, there's actually really no applications around because nobody's made any yet so why don't we make some quote unquote first party applications and games and we're like well we all grew up making games you know so i you know plus the computing capabilities of these devices with their 64 kilobytes of memory you know and tiny um 65 by say you know 48 pixel black or white pixel kind tiny, of screens, teeny tiny, tiny screens, tiny. but actually computing capabilities were not that dissimilar from the computers that I made games on, right? You know, when I grew up, the Commodore 64, right? Comes so 64 gaming, kilobytes.
1: gaming was still an undercurrent of all this for you when you're it developing was not browser
2: based. No, no, it was, no, we were literally not making games. We were I making delivery softwares. Yeah. I mean, yes, I love, I mean, I played lots of games. Yeah. I had left my game making days behind Got or it. so I thought, right? Until hey, we need to make some games to, like, fill the pipeline. Like, I'm sure the professional game companies who know how to do this will come in one day and, you know, outcompete us entirely. But for now, let's make some first-party games so that these download portals would have some content. So we just looked at what games did we like in the 1980s and how can we, you know, can we create games inspired by those games and back then we, we literally had a four or five week complete game development cycle from like oh from from from, <laughs> from, a, from a hey what shall we make to finish product because it only takes so long to make a pac-man like game or to make a you know turtle bridge like game or any other game that you sort of loved from that era so we made a lot of games quite quickly and as we discovered over times we are actually, turned out to be better at making games than we turned out to be making these game delivery systems. Over time, the, our game business co- very quickly, other game delivery systems wanted our games because we spent a lot of love on making them. And um, that's how Macrospace, my first company, really started growing. And that business grew quite quickly. Like We found ourselves being a game company, which we didn't set up originally. But one of the really great things was that we released a lot of titles. I want to say like over our first, we had a sort of, at least, I would say uh, we probably released about 10 titles a year, more or less, that were all, you know, um, some more successful than others. We didn't really kill titles at the time because we could make them so fast, and then it was done. If it wasn't successful, it wasn't successful, and right. that, was, that was okay. But we learned so much about the cycle of game making. And of course, new phones would come out every year, and they would have slightly larger screens, slightly more memory, slightly more capabilities. So you very quickly ended up with a porting nightmare of, you know, you to, yeah, exactly, you had to support like hundreds and hundreds of different types of SKUs. And then you had to start thinking about the technology underlying, like, what is our game engine? Like, how do we build a thing that then we can ultimately, you know, that can manifest itself on different size screens in and different ways. And what's
1: the best one to focus on? And you know, the whole that whole time was
2: bananas it was absolutely bonkers yeah. that time yeah so but what was cool is that we learned quickly as a team to try to look forward on technology like where are mobile phones going what's the screen size is going to be two years from now and how do we learn to make games that we can ultimately sort of upport port to those devices and or like how do we create a game that really um makes the most out of these devices and the new whatever crazy control system they would come out with. Because of course these were not touchscreens. So you had phones right. with various form factors and and whatnot. So it was a it was like a in in lots of ways I felt like that business, it was so hard to eke a profit out of it. And there was such hard work to do everything. It was like the Russian gulag stage of mobile <laughs> gaming, you know? You worked so hard. And but the people who survived it, who actually managed to figure out systems and processes to make games and get them to run technically and run QA on like hundreds of different devices that you had to somehow get hold of, uh, and somehow successfully sell these through, and and you know and ultimately make enough money to, to to pay yourselves. I think became very adept at being incredibly flexible and thoughtful in terms of game company building because okay. whatever you built got torn down very quickly because it was a new phone or a new approach or a new thing that was happening in the in the market.
1: Interesting. So that how how. What were your kind of techniques? I'm just super curious about um, the future predicting for two years down the road when the new phone was coming out. Um, Like, how did you guys approach that when you were thinking future forward for your, for your games? So it became
2: very quickly, um, one of the fun things was because the technology cycle was so fast, like literally every, that was a time when, like these days, a new phone comes out and how is this different from the previous one, like maybe a slightly better camera or whatnot. But back then they actually did become remarkably better, like year by year by year, right? And you could actually literally just look back. Two years, and you could sort of see what is the curve, and then you could think, okay, what does that mean in a year or two years' time? And then you could always look at Korea and Japan, right? Because they were always ahead at that time, so you could sort of see, okay, so that's where it's it's going to be heading in that broad direction. Maybe not exactly like that, but that was always a that was always a, a an important inspiration. But then trying to also forecast the technologies and like how is Java going to evolve on mobile, how it'll business models evolved, because they were folks, of course, trying out subscription services and all sorts of things. And, and that became a, we became obsessed with trying to understand this notion of, like, how will people play on these devices a couple of years from now? Uh, how can we make sure that we will be, A, making great games, but B, be ready for that? And I think, actually, those years, if you look at companies like, say, uh, Supercell was founded by a set of folks who previously built a company called Sumea out of Finland, that um, struggled with exactly the same things. We knew like we were sort of almost sister companies in that we both, whenever there would be a new phone, we'd have our games on it, they'd have their games on it. And we were kind of, we were, we were uh, friendly, friendly rivals in game making that way. But both of us sort of learned similar things and hence became obsessed with trying to work out what's happening with game platforms in general. And I think many of those teams went on to then build whether it was Facebook game companies or first generation like iPhone game companies or whatnot, like game companies in areas where the platform is changing rapidly. Yeah. That then impacts game design, impacts technical approach, all of those things. And they become very kind of agile game-making teams with a very keen eye on technology roadmaps as a result.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that time I remember being in the in very firmly in the console game world and watching that and just being like. Oh my god how do they do that because of the rapid technology change you know a new phone is a new platform mm. um so um it was really interesting to watch that
2: yeah and one thing actually that was pretty interesting is that the companies that were successful in that era typically had a pretty different game making structure from console companies like the the joke at the time ran that whenever a bigger game company attempted to make a mobile game they would take far too long and far far too many people and it would never work out basically it would come out like a year too late and then on all the wrong platforms and and whatnot and I think and the sort of organizationally our observation was that the companies that were successful like never had the role of a producer like it just did not exist so what you would have is you have like a coder artist pair that on the one hand like make the game cuz right. that's how small the team could be they make the core of the game and sure if the coder needs an assistant coder to help make more code then so be it or if the artist needs an additional artist to, to do stuff and then they would between themselves figure out how to you know how to get the sounds or whatever cuz was either midi or you know some yep. some very 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 rudimentary like uh, you can play a single wave file or whatever <laughs> that's that sort of thing but you could basically make the game in a very small team and the only thing that was like the thing that was most important was the sort of production management from the point of view of are we writing this in such a way that we can port it to lots of different devices and we can QA it. So like, what does the QA pipeline look like internally? But nobody mess with like, I don't think I ever saw a game design doc any kind of like, uh, you know, anything that would constitute gates in development or anything like this it was literally just yeah, we're gonna make it fast games. yeah it's, too, yeah, it's too, fast. like all, all, all of that was was overhead which actually interestingly also bled over I think to two companies like Supercell many of the that generation of mobile gaming companies were like hey this is we make games in small teams with minimal minimal overhead which really works very well at a certain scale of game yeah and if you can make that culture work then of course but it there is also a very long and proud history of making larger budget games where you truly perhaps need to have a pretty different approach to making games. And I think that transition yeah, I mean, is actually really interesting.
1: On those big games, I mean, as soon as you get over 10 people, you basically need a producer, Yeah, you know? A- and there
2: are really good reasons for gates and you know, development yeah. processes. And there's really good reasons for game design docs and technical design docs and all of these things, right? So, uh, but it's just interesting that that raw game making, literally the coder artist, like atomic unit of game making was so effective at a time where technology moved so fast and the games were so small that you just got to ship a lot and see a lot of successes and a lot of failures and a lot of things fall apart in different ways, which is always a kind of, I felt like not ever then having worked in a big game company, the intuitive learning of how game development works and what tends to go into successful game teams, like successful projects and not successful projects, some degree just came from pattern recognition of seeing just so many of them in different ways yeah
1: i can imagine like um you don't have time to ruminate on a failure or even a success right it's like more needs to happen and you know you learn from from doing and it's like you know a certain amount of you know you cut out all the naval navel gazing of why that game didn't work and because you're already yeah basically and, and it, a, it
2: just becomes more of a an observation that didn't work and then you know, we didn't have formal postmortem processes, obviously yeah. at the time, but it became very much of a oh, this combination of factors doesn't appear to be that successful. But it was still pretty cool. Like I remember a moment. I think it was two thousand and three. Um, we made a game called Ancient Empires Two, which was uh, we had made an Ancient Empires one at one point in time, which is basically a advanced wars inspired sort of turn based combat game but then we made ancient empires we really liked that and we felt like you know the, it, it was good and then we made ancient empires 2 because they were the color phones coming out for the first time color screens i mean that's pretty awesome right vga graphics 640 yeah. by 480 we're like we're gonna go big we're gonna go big <laughs> and go you know color screens make ancient, ancient empires 2 and and um we got like our, our our best team and this was like the biggest team production ever there was like five people on this team or whatever and I remember, like, I was, you know, we were like, we're going to do this well. I'm going to, you know, I, I did some of the writing for the dialogue. And, you know, I wrote the music behind the scenes, like, you know, as an amateur MIDI composer, kind of, you know, I'm just going to do something, right? And um, we all pulled together on that one. Then I actually won the um, AIAS Game of the Year Award for mobile at the time. And we were like, what's AIAS? What is <laughs> What is this? Is it like they give awards for this sort of thing? Right. That's cool, you know? So and here we are. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, it was, so it was, um, but that was, uh, yeah, that was, I think, my first actual, run in with a quote-unquote real game industry at the time that hey hold on a second somebody cares about what we make
1: and so that that must have led to glue
2: yeah that's true yeah so we had at the time that company macrospace grew very quickly for like literally not at all by any kind of crazy sort of strategy we were a bunch of kids making games just turned out that many of our we could make them faster and better than most others and we were good at making friends in the industry that would distribute them in in different ways Um, and we grew revenue and profit actually fairly rapidly our challenge was that we then looked across the pond this was all based out of the uk at the time we looked at the us and there were a bunch of game companies raising large rounds of money we just we're like what does it mean to raise money what is this how do we get many millions um and so we thought, okay, we, we need to raise some money too. Obviously not understanding anything about what it meant to ra- raise money sure. or any of these things. But we, we tried out of London and it was very clear that we couldn't, like, we, we wouldn't command valuations that would even, like, there would be a hair, haircut to our revenue. So, you know, if we made, like, $10 million and with some profit a year, then, like, they would offer us a term sheet at, like, $5 million valuation or something right. like this. And you're like, how does... I'm pretty sure that this is not how they should work when like you know, equivalent companies in the US had uh, well, could raise like a $10 million round or whatever it was, or $15 million round, which seemed astronomical amounts of money at that time. Um, so anyway, so we went to the Silicon Valley and we're like, OK, we're going to raise money from the Silicon Valley. Let's go. You know, they seem to have a lot of money over here. So can we have some, please? Yeah. Um, and they said, can you move the whole company to Silicon Valley? We look at each other and we go, I don't think we can move the whole company. We're like 30 or 40 or whatever we were at the time. Um, and then they ask, well, actually, um, can we, uh, we we have an idea. We just invested in a company called Sorrent. We brought in a new CEO. They have a lot of money. They don't have any of your, like, many of the things that you have. Game-making capability and international distribution and all of these sorts of things. Like, would you, would you consider, like, somehow merging with them? And we're like, what does it mean to merge? Yeah. <laughs> you literally had no idea at the time. It was quite cute. Um, but anyway, we ended up chatting a whole bunch and then ultimately chose to combine forces with Sorrent back then and they they hated our name they thought we sounded like a tech company which in all fairness we were from the start we thought they sounded like a toothpaste so (laughs) so like so um and we decided then to re re rebrand the global company blue mobile at the time and then we literally started this path of fairly fairly rapid growth. We had a really good, fortunate combination of really strong, like what and slash Glue US was really strong at was distribution and really great carrier relationships and some good licensing deals and whatnot. And, and we had pretty strong relationships across Europe and Asia. And we managed to collectively build a, what turned out to be a fairly successful company.
1: Yeah, legendary, legendary mobile company. So um, then you're on to Playfish.
2: That's it, yeah. So we went public with Glue in 2007, right? And this going public thing had, you know, this young impressionable me was looking at those good looking bankers in this, you know, swanky suits going, like explaining to us how amazing it's all going to be. And it, it turned out that I thought it was like, was just going to be amazing. I'm going to be a public company. Like I can tell my mom about this, right? And as it turns out, just being public, I actually really did not like it. I just kind of hated it because A, you had like a high score permanently in, in that form of your stock price. But perhaps more importantly, I had this deep unease around how the industry had evolved because we had become hyper-sensitized to this idea of where's, where's it going, where's it going, where's it going. And it seemed like there was no, like, while devices were getting better, the distribution layer was getting kind of more and more neglected in some ways. The carriers or network operators, like the Verizons of this world that were selling these games, the role of the person running that portal, they were like a kingmaker. And there was no real, you know, they literally decided what they were going to feature and what they weren't going to feature. And the successful companies didn't increasingly, success didn't come from making great games necessarily. Success came from figuring out a way to, get your thing featured. Because at the end of the day, the carriers didn't really care about the revenue that much and consumers had no way of complaining or knowing or writing reviews or anything. So like, there was no feedback loop at all. So it all became very distribution focused. And as a result, Glue Mobile's plan at the time became very, you know what, we own distribution. So we're going to go acquire a whole bunch of studios and shove product through the pipe, right? And I'm like, I want to make great games. I don't want to shove product through a pipe. And it just felt like, Any industry where the end result is not great for the consumer doesn't feel like necessarily that sustainable or good, or for that matter, fun to to, to work in. So I started feeling increasingly like, hey, we got to like pivot to do something online or do something different that's direct to consumer, like find something else. Because this feels like this is kind of a dangerous path that the industry is going down, or pre-iPhone, obviously. Yeah. Um, And so ultimately we decided that if I'm gonna go do that, then I need to go do that outside of the company. So when we made the uh, press release that summer, I'm gonna say after about being public for just just shy of six months or something like that, um, we made a press release that I'm leaving because I was a section 16 officer at the time and the stock price jumped. (laughs) <laughs> it I was like, what? wait, what? I'm worth, <laughs> I'm worth negative how much to this company? Uh, it was No, I mean, it was just one of those moments. I'm sure it's algorithmic or whatever, but it yeah. was one of those like when you truly like, you know how you harbor these uh, illusions about yourself when you grow and build companies and whatnot. And then, you know, you're like, how's the world going to react when, you know, when I, when I leave this, I mean, I've been here for a long time making games and then it turns out the world really doesn't care, right? <laughs> right. So anyway, so um, I left as did, This is basically the same co-founding team um, from the original Macrospace. And we literally got together and said, okay, that was act one. We learned a lot. How do we take all this stuff that we know and point it to something more interesting and um, where we feel like there's a growth opportunity and there's something new. And we loved the Nintendo Wii collectively. Like we used to play the uh, Nintendo Wii games a lot together. And the thing that we really loved was the fact that it wasn't about the graphics or, like, what was on screen. It was really about the interaction and the, the social nature in the of Play. Like, yeah, that it was, yeah. they, they, even the ads, they always turned the camera around and show the family playing together, or whatever it was, which we really loved that. And then the other thing that had happened, like, really that year, 2007, was that we, at least, yeah, so in the UK, where, where we had our offices, we got access to Facebook, right? Like <laughs> The very naive, very first versions of Facebook. And we, you know, we created groups. Of, they didn't have groups. So I'd like messaged each other in the office on Facebook and whatnot. We just felt it was really fun posting photos or whatever it was. And, we, and we, we literally, after leaving, we were like, what if, what if the Nintendo had a love child with Facebook? Like, what would that look like? Like, what would it be like to be able to play these types of games, which are fundamentally about this interaction together, but as opposed to playing them in a the living room, playing them like, in a really seamless, fast, clean platform, like what Facebook was at the time. Um, and we were like, okay, well, we can write that. We can we can do that. That sounds like a really fun thing. Plus, you know, we did okay from the IPO. So we're like, we're just going to start building this, right? Um, and we stood up really quickly our first game. We didn't even, Facebook hadn't launched their platform. So we actually didn't. We started off by writing a back end as well as the front end because we were like, we need to write like, you know, game book or something like this, like the actual destination that allows you to both be friends and and play these games. And so we started writing the backend and the front end. And then Facebook announced that they're doing a platform and we're like, well, we're ready. (laughs) Yeah, we're ready. And then really quickly, I want to say about two months after founding the company, we we released our first title. Called "Who Has the Biggest Brain." This was the first time, actually. This was like the biggest production. No, it was no. It's that's not quite true. It was probably on par with the biggest production we had ever done in terms of development time. So it was probably like two and a half months or something like this. And we actually did have weekly meetings on how it's going. And we had like all of six or something like people working on it, something like you know, three developers and two artists and one designer or something like this. Um, and uh, "Who Has the Biggest Brain" was that first title, and it was heavily inspired by. Uh, big Brain Academy at the time, which is a big hit on the, yep. on, on the, on the Game Boy no, Game Boy Advance, I think, at the time. Um, and um, that game, it was, the, it was one of the more magical moments, actually, in, for me, like in my entire career, was putting that game out there. You know, I was playing it in the office and then going, okay, this works, this works, this works. And then kind of flick the switch that it is now live on Facebook. And let's go invite some of our friends to play this. And then just kind of see what happens, you know. And um, it was, the cool thing was like watching the like the very rudimentary analytics. Like there wasn't there was no such thing as game analytics. Like the whole thing didn't exist, right? So it's yeah. like you know, two thousand seven. So we just had it created this little script that would tell us like every day and more or less like how many people played, how many times it was played, and whatnot. And seeing that, like you know, we invited like a few friends each or whatever it was, and. Um, and sort of the first day was like 60 people that played the game. We're like, that's pretty cool. I mean, we only invited 10, not whatever it was. And then the following day was like 547. We're like, who are these people? Like, where, how did they, what, what is this thing? And then it's like 4,961 the following day. And we're like, what is going on here? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And then it's like 14,000 and it's like 50,000 or whatever. And like the the that explosion, I remember this was just on the run-up to Christmas that year. Um and we were all collective look at guys like okay okay everybody pause for a second like what is actually happening here like we just put a game out and it's the growth rate was like insane I think we hit a hundred thousand players in I want to say something like eight or nine days or something like this and then it continued very rapid growth from there onwards and then and he caught the attention of Facebook and others pretty quickly and then we're like okay okay so there's a like so this is like this is a thing like you can make games like this and they will grow very fast and people will love playing them together. Back then Facebook was fairly spammy so that when you would beat somebody else's score you would announce to all your friends that you're smarter than yeah. that person and Mafia and whatnot. Yeah yeah those I mean that hadn't been invented yet right yeah, but but that but, was the peak. Yeah in 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 some ways in fact yeah what what the, yeah, it was just interesting like so we went with this okay we want to build Nintendo online basically and as we made, who has the biggest brain? That was like our concept, our first like, hey, we're going to make one game to see how this even goes. Like, how does it? How does it feel? Um, and that was like an like way surpassed all of our expectations in terms of how big it can become. So we then started thinking, okay, we we want to make uh, we want to make one more game, a little bit like that. So a game because who has the biggest brain? The premise of it was like a game show online with your real, you know, your 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 friends' faces. So it's like it is like very Nintendo esque in its production values on the one hand, but on the other hand, bringing your face, your profile picture, if you right. like, into it, in such a way it's that it's like a, a game show hosted by, on Facebook, within your friends, and you're sort of constantly part of this game show as to who's going to have the biggest brain. So we then, we did a quick uh, sequel, sort of, which was called Word Challenge, that was same with, um, what's it called, a similar sort of format of a game show, but this time a word-guess-the-word type, type game. And then we were like, okay, this is cool, Like we're getting like millions of players, uh, now we need some level of persistence. We need something that actually is more, is some, something a little bit deeper. And um, the team started uh, work on initially a game called Pet Society, which really became our really big hit. So that was a a um, um, a virtual pet game where the idea was that you would create a house, if you like, where your pet lives. Your pet is autonomous, but you have to Kind of take care of it and you can buy things for it and you can go visit your other pets houses and form friendships and relationships and leave them kisses and whatnot right and this like when we put that out there like that was the moment when we just realized like this is a really big business like this is like i remember when pet society hit like not long after launch. i'm gonna say i'm gonna say like less than i think it was less than two weeks after launch where we hit a million players and then like the monthly actives growing from there like just month on month on month by call it a million a month or so and just the amount of players and the amount of um transactions this is around the time when we introduced microtransactions as well um it was just one of those very seldom in the gaming certainly i haven't seen and i haven't been part of a, a game or a story that just kind of explodes up and to the right like whatever we did Whatever we touched, whatever we put out there, would get somewhere in the top five um, on Facebook's most played. And um, and uh, we would just gain players kind of for free. We didn't know what marketing was, right? We had never done it. We didn't understand. We didn't know there was such a thing as user acquisition. It was literally all based on just making what we wanted to make and play ourselves, which is Nintendo-style games online with friends. Then, of course, I mean, everything growing quickly and whatnot. And then <laughs> Facebook... Um, to to uh well there were a bunch of other game companies that got formed that didn't care so much about production values cared much more about hey how do we juice the viral channels and juice monetization and find out like basically in well well they didn't invent UA but from our point of view we had never understood that that this is a thing um and then ultimately ended up uh making the Facebook gaming environment into what it became at the time which was an incredibly spammy sort of fairly low production value um environment, which ultimately then Facebook ended up nerfing quite a lot in terms of nerfing viral channels and, and, and whatnot um, in different ways and introducing Facebook credits and all sorts of things. It was like, oh, uh, yeah, it was I forgot like, about all that stuff. Yeah, no, no but it, it, there was that time, which was like, we felt that it was quite an interesting actually revelation for us that it really took us a, like, for around a year, year and a half, we had grown really sort of in an unconstrained fashion. And then... We started realizing that actually, you know what, we're building on top of a platform that is fundamentally going to be changing the rules in various, to us, semi-arbitrary ways, or perhaps not so strategic, or perhaps very strategic ways, but in ways that, like, we could, we had no agency or control over, which to us, like, was 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 uh, was was pretty scary. So we were like, okay, we need to grow this company further, and and if we're going to do that, we probably need to pivot onto mobile and other stuff because we had just, you know, you get this feeling in your stomach that like, this may not be a stable environment, like yes we've had an amazing run here yes we've made a lot of money we've been very fortunate here but and we've had a lot of players but this may not last this way and you know again that obsession of trying to look forward and like where's where's the puck going like yeah. how do people play
1: I remember I was working at PopCap during mm. like kind of the height of maybe the well at least the height and maybe the little bit of the drop off of it but like yeah. taking games like um Bejeweled and Zuma, yeah. And Peggle, and trying to create Facebook games um, out of those games, and I remember c- very clearly sitting in that in that office, going, "This is, this is not going to last. It's not going to be a thing that goes forever." Yeah, and it was so explosive, and then it it felt mm. like it ended almost as quickly.
2: Yeah, it was pretty. It was it was. Pretty mad overall as a time period. I think, by the way, it could have been. It was one of those examples of a platform that could have been a platform for much longer had it been curated and gardened, you know, as mm. a tended, if you like, as a as a true first-class gaming ecosystem. It could probably have been made, but it clearly wasn't a priority at the time. And by the way, we looked up to PopCap so much in terms of building game mechanics and like really delightful gameplay. So it was like one of our, when we were like thinking about like, you know, who do we want to be when we grow up? Like, you know, there were aspects of Nintendo, aspects of Pixar, aspects of PopCap, you know, aspects of other companies. Um, but it did, so we, we then thought, okay, this this may not last in this way, uh, or at least it, yeah, it may not. So we better go out, raise some more money or do something. Um, and at that moment in time, we also felt a little, like a, a slight, uh, what's it called? Uh, Call back to that time when we went public with glue that just this adding more money to a game company isn't necessarily making it into a better game company at the time and then ea came knocking on our door going hey you know what we want to we we, we we want we want some of this um and so we then looked at each other and goes what do we really want here in terms of what we're building and we um we thought hey you know what we tried the <laughs> raising money ipo proth last time how about we try out this does it feel like to be part of a bigger company and can we you know we had this internal rallying cry of like the reverse takeover has begun you know <laughs> we were such kids it was the funniest thing uh, but um but um so we ultimately ended up becoming part of ea but that was like it was such a crazy journey the company was 23 months old when ea boss wow. from like yeah it was it was one of those like i don't think i'll ever in during my career see a time when there's such a strong tailwind where you are just at the right time in the right place with the right team with a Largely the right thesis on a market, um, yeah, there's no that, way to engineer not really, any no of that, no, know? I mean, you know you could try to claim that you're somehow farsighted and like you know yeah, we always knew what we really didn't know. It was a bet. in fact, when we started, I remember when we started sharing what we are going to do, there was a whole bunch of uh, smiling and chuckles that the Western consumer will never pay for microtransactions, like come on, you're making flash games and you're expecting people to pay for pixels, like what kind of a business plan is that? Yeah. Right? you know and it's like i don't know it feels like it could be but they were it's it's every time you set up a new company you go after a new opportunity or in the game market really make a new game it's a bet on the state of the world and a bet that there is a demand for something and uh, that just really worked out i mean it was just yeah it just it was a time and a place that i don't know it will ever be repeated quite in that yeah quite in the same way it but was, it was an definitely
1: amazing, crazy time
2: amazing time to be part of it so
1: you've taken all these lessons and experiences, Mm. and now it's time to start up the deliciously named super evil megacorp.
2: Yeah, so after Playfish became part of EA, I was uh, actually spent a few years at EA actually as an executive vice president of digital, actually uh, really trying to work on figuring out how EA moves on from selling boxes to actually running digital services and Operating loot boxes and all that stuff. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but, <laughs> no, but how, like you know, how how the company fundamentally thinks to become a direct-to-consumer company uh, over time. And that was, was sort of fun uh, for a couple of years. I enjoyed the journey of being part of a big company at a senior level for a little bit. But it's ultimately not where my heart is. So I, I left. I tried to be an investor for a little bit uh helped set up an investment company called Initial Capital together with my Playfish founders at the time and actually the first investment we ever made was to lead the seed investment running to Supercell at the time because so we knew those guys from all the way back from the Java game sure. days and and they were and they were just really good game makers so we were like okay you know here go 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 you know that was a smart way we, we were really fortunate I mean we were, it's just one another one of those like you know it's stars happen to align and you know we literally just knew them and we knew they could make great games and that's back when they were working on a dystopian Facebook MMO to be clear so yeah. like <laughs> that was the business plan that we invested in at the time so things changed a little after um, but I tried to be an investor I was actually um, but got very Frustrated with the idea of being an investor because you're ultimately doing relatively little like you're sort of the really important thing is to get into the right deals somehow get invested into the right companies but actually what you can do on the other side of the table as an investor at a board meeting is relatively little and usually I felt that the companies that I that needed my help. I actually couldn't help very much. And the companies that didn't need my help, those were the cool companies, you know, right. <laughs> doing the cool stuff. And right. they were like, what are you doing here? Just go go do your investor thing. Like, we've got this, you know. Um, so at that point in time, I had actually invested in Super Evil Megacorp. I, super, I did not, I was not a founder of Super Evil Megacorp. I was a, I was an early investor. One of the senior folks at Playfish had co-founded it at the time. So that's how I knew it. And I ended up hanging out with them because they were making this super cool game called Bainglory. Um, And I was like, just because remember that obsession, which has always been with me really since the early Java game days is like, where are devices going? Like, where's the tech going? And hence, how will people play games, you know, in three to five to seven years? And he felt like they were so ahead of that curve of, hey, mobiles will become more powerful over time. If you can build an engine and a game making capability that builds the kind of games that people are enjoying on PC and console, and making those for a broad range of mobile devices, there will be a market for that. Somebody's going to want that because I want that as a player. So somebody's going to want that. And I ended up hanging up, hanging out at the Super Evil offices and at some point in time, like, literally went like, guys, I'm I'm kind of banned by my wife from, you know, setting up another game company because, yeah, you know, we had two young kids and, you know, perhaps it's no longer, it's, it's, you know, perhaps I don't need to get up at 2 a.m. to you know, (laughs) got a cold sweat and think everything's going to hell, you know, Um, perhaps I can, you know, perhaps I can, you know, do something a little less intense. So, but I really love what Super Evil is doing and like, it's just a really cool game and it's a cool company and cool founders and, and all of the things. So maybe I can just help out here. Like maybe, you know, maybe I can invent some title and come and kind of help out with this growth. I've done this company growth thing a couple of times, so maybe I can help and I can come in and raise some money and build a marketing department and, you know, try to, help out in whatever way I can. So I ended up joining as a COO and executive director. How's that for imaginary titles? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> And um, and then helped with all of those things and lived through the launch of Vainglory. It was uh, an incredible event at the, it was the iPhone 6 launch, I think. Uh, we had like two minutes nearly on stage with Apple at that moment in time. And we were like, hey, this is the future of gaming. And that was like one of the cooler, prouder moments. Uh, again, to be able to be part of a movement that felt like, hey, here's like truly a next generation thing that's happening, and I get to be there at the start, which was really amazing. Vanglory did very well uh, for a number of number of years. It was really like, hey, multiplayer core gaming is here for mobile, and here's like the beacon title for that. Um, we did well for a number of years, and it's a great game. It, no, I mean, still, it's one of the games that, like, out of all the games that I've been part of making, it's still probably the one even though I had relatively little to do with the actual game making, but it's still the one that I think I put altogether the most hours into as a player. Just because, I mean, I was a big League of Legends player, and that's just, A, the rank grind is just catnip for me personally, yeah. but also just the, the focus on um, control precision. That, you notice know, that feeling of gameplay when you feel like you're completely in control, but at the same time, you have just the right amount of tactical and strategic choices as a player that you're kind of feeling that yeah, I have mechanical skill, but I'm also out thinking the, the flow. opponent doesn't play. Yeah, the flow. The, the flow. flow. That's the that's the word. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, put lots of hours into it. that title did really well. It was really cool. It, it sort of grew to become the really the first mobile esport in some ways. Like I mean it had more than hundred thousand simultaneous viewers and its world championships. Like it was a it was a thing. And going to these esports events was like intoxicating, right? It was literally intoxicating. You were like, holy shit, like this is the this is next level. You know, like with Playfish it was uh, all of this stuff happened online. There are millions and millions of players, but you never you didn't really see them in real life that much. Right. You know, some people would wear t-shirts and they were like playfish cafes here and there, but like you didn't really see that visceral when people get into like a stadium or a thing, like everybody's shouting your game. And we were just like, whoa, 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 this is kind of cool. And we probably got a little bit drunken on that success at the time. And probably, I mean, we it was one of the probably my personal bigger learning experiences, actually, and probably from the fact that the companies that had grown previously always went up and to the right. So that is the way of game businesses. You make good games and games grow and the business becomes more valuable and you make more money all the time. Turns out it doesn't always work that way, no. <laughs> as, it, as, I, as, I, as I found out. So Vinglory uh, so grew. I um, wanna say about, if I remember correctly, somewhere around three million or so monthly active. It's really st- like a strong player base, but it actually, we had really enormous challenges growing it beyond that. Be- I mean, we were very early, there were not that many of these devices around. And then at one point in time, Asia, which was the strongest market for us, started having really strong local competitors in, in the form of, of Mobile Legends and Glory of Kings from Tencent and whatnot. And um, we kind of we were just kind of there with that title. And we didn't really have a second title in development or anything else. And then there's a moment when like everything has a curve. And when Vainglory atrophied a little bit, we found ourselves in this place where we look at each other and go, like, wait, what? What's the nice. plan yeah. now, right? And it was really a big wake-up moment for me, actually, because I was—I felt like, like I felt like, hold on a second. We, we've like, who, who, who was in charge? Like, how did we, how did we get here? And it was quite interesting, like, as we, because everybody had been working super hard across the board. And I think what basically had happened was that we were all a probably drunken on some early success of inglory. And then B, I think the founding team was looking to me a little bit as like the most senior company builder in the room or most, most experienced one for sure. And maybe I had kind of put my head in the sand and go, well, the deal wasn't, I'm not going to get up at 2 a.m. and like cold sweat and what's going to, you know, everything's going to shit. Um, and at the same time, you know, clearly nobody had really. And then we found ourselves in this place where, you know, we got to reset. We got to do something about this. Um, and through then a whole bunch of conversations, we ultimately uh, decided that I'm going to take on the CEO job at that moment in time, and then um, went through a really big reset of the company. We went from over 100 people down to like 20 something people, 26, 27, something like that. Incredibly painful, most painful things that I've done, and and we we couldn't even do it all at the same time. We had to do it in a certain staggered way. Lots of could have done it much better at the time, but really, I um, it was probably the probably the worst feeling time in my entire career in terms of. Feeling like we'd let the players down because we couldn't find a way to make the title profitable and growing. Felt like we'd let the team down because we hadn't, you know, financially managed the company in a way that allowed us to, um, you know, that allowed us to um, uh, thrive and, you know, not do this big reset. But on the other hand, we had built amazing tech. We had built an amazing capability to know and understand real-time multiplayer games on mobile, and we had a really strong setup core core team that we could build on. So from then on, we then made some really big, big, big choices together. We sat in a, in a circle as a company on the grass somewhere in Pescadero. I think we'd rented this some Airbnb, and we were like, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have some real talk. We're gonna really, you know, make some big decisions here." And we decided that we are gonna make a company that's gonna make multiple games at the same time. So we will make a game based on everything we know how to do, and then we're going to, before that game comes out, start another game, and then we're going to work toward this place where we are. Able to, I mean, we said we're going to try to get to a place where we could kick off one game every year, which is, sounds, sounds ridiculous, but you know we, that's kind of a north star. We're going to try to go in that direction as much as we can. We're going to become remote first, as we called it. Then we didn't call it fully distributed because we felt that there's no way that we can find the talent and keep the talent that we need to have in in the Bay Area in San Mateo, which is where we were. And we decided we're going to start taking orthogonal risk with our title so that we self publish one, but then maybe we work with a publisher or we do something, maybe with a third party IP, do something else with our second title. And we perhaps, you know, we are, we can, we will try perhaps different business models and other things and sort of earn our way back to a place where we can reliably make great games that are not just great games, but commercially successful so that we can pay our own salaries. Because for me, some of the, my, proudest things in my career in general has been seeing that hard work and the sweat and tears of the core team working on all of these things, being able to walk away uh, with a significant kind of personal reward from having been part of one of these adventures, for having believed in a dream at a time. And I felt great, great responsibility for the folks who decided to re-sign up effectively You know, at, at a time when you know we had to reset the company and we kind of asked people that, you know what, believe in this v2.0 this company we we can do this and you know people had gone through a painful period and like we are asking them for a lot so like it was really important that we find a way to financial sustainability and obviously ultimately financial success so that's where we started we were like dug ourselves into a hole and there we are sitting at the bottom of that hole and started making a game called catalyst black catalyst which, Black. that's it so we started thinking okay how do we take what we learned with Vainglory and there's probably a, a book's worth of like Retrospectives on Vainglory and what we learned from that. How do we take all of those learnings and try to pour them into a game that is much more accessible? Where we are kind of we we um, uh, try to correct for all the things we got wrong with Vainglory, but at the same time, while building that game, we want to build a way of making games that we can then start a second title from. and We can fork that team at some point in time in order to start, you know, start start doing different things. Distributed. Sorry. Well, we were remote first at the time. Many of us were in San Mateo still we then made the decision later to become fully distributed Uh, and then we haven't looked back since but um but we actually turned out that once we saw that remote first is just fine when we hired folks from l.a and from seattle and whatnot once that became just fine we were like actually you know what it's actually easier when everyone's at home because then there's not like one office culture and one remote culture actually because everyone's remote so everyone's the same so as a result like at least we're building one operating system for the company not right, multiple right? Right, right So but we started building Catalyst Black we felt pretty good about it started building what just came out which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Love that Fate. game yeah so that good. came out yeah and so I'm actually really really proud of that game because whereas Catalyst Black in some ways was the first title that we shipped as AV2.0 company with all of the things that usually come with a first ship we wanted to make it quickly we wanted to kind of have it come together um it came together in many ways I'm proud of it it's a good game um, it didn't quite hit the commercial goals that we wanted, but, and also there were like things in the development process that we learned a lot from, um, as developers. But I really felt that, uh, with Splintered Fate, we sort of came of age in some ways as a V2, as company in terms of we can ship a game that is, that is, um, that, um, is, I mean, we certainly feel more excited about bringing it to PC and console, hopefully, um, in, in, the, in the next couple of years. But, um, a game that that really came out super strong out of the gates which it's is great.
1: really strong it's really polished yeah it's played a lot Played my kid a lot too it's really fun
2: it's great yeah and even i mean not to undersell catalyst black i mean what well, samsung game of the year it was very highly reviewed in lots of different ways it was just a tough time i think commercially for that title to 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 come out in the way that it did um but so those are the two titles that are live and then we're working on a number of other things and I feel like we've sort of come from you know we dug ourselves a hole now we filled up the hole we're back on the ground we still have it all to prove we need to continue to ship great titles build a great company but you know it's been it's been a journey
1: so i i really want to talk to you about your your philosophies and um methodologies about remote and distributed Mm. it's a huge topic in the game industry you're clearly doing it before the pandemic Um, so you were probably in pretty great shape, uh, when that happened and what was it like watching all of the whole other entire game industry kind of, um, wrestle with something that you'd kind of already maybe been, you know, I mean, remote and distributed, it's not a new thing, Mm. but you certainly, um, had some type of success with it. What was it like watching, the rest of the industry successfully and unsuccessfully wrestle with that?
2: Well, I think that time was pretty nuts in general. And, and I think I think you're right that our, our uh, transition or our kind of work through that was pretty unaffected as a result. I would say, though, that we did not feel confident in our methodology. We were obsessed with it. We had made a strategic choice to do it. Um, we had, and we were constantly evaluating, how is this going, how is this going? Because we hadn't shipped, remember, right? We hadn't yep. shipped. So until you ship, you're nothing, right? So as a result, we were constantly, we were pretty paranoid and we had, you know, we'd written our own handbook at the time and we had been editing our handbook. And actually one of the first things we did when the US went into lockdown was to just share our handbook, going, hey, here's how we do it, you know, <laughs> if any, in case anybody else wants to, you know, try this out. And the thing that I think what I felt sort of maybe the best about was that, hey, Maybe we don't have to invent all of this thing ourselves. Maybe if other people do it too and we can find a good way to share tips and hints and tips and tricks and the sort of human condition right now just is one where we're all sitting at home, then maybe we'll actually have a better chance at figuring this out and get getting really good at it. Because I don't, you know, to your point that had existed before. So it theoretically should be possible. And we were just uh we were very What's it? We are just kind of paranoid about the fact that we really want this to work really, really well because it's our, literally our entire growth strategy is based on it. So we, we better come, you know, we, we better be able to make it work.
1: Was it, um, was it, did it come about for you guys um, as like something that was like gnawing at you in the process that you had to fix something? Or did you, was it like, you know, you just want to try something? Like how did it, how did it blossom for you guys? Because, I know I've been. I was working remotely and, and mm. distributed before the pandemic. Also, um, at a couple startups that I had, and it just worked. It didn't like. It wasn't something that we said. Oh, we got to do this. It just was a natural thing. And do you think a lot of um, game companies who haven't gone remote or maybe are going back to the office now? Um, do you think that's more of like something that's ingrained in the culture of game mm. development or is it, is it more like, you know, we don't, companies don't want to rock the boat and they just want to get back to business to what as they usual. know?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, so I think, I mean, we made a very deliberate strategic choice early on, but well before the pandemic that we want to have access to talent everywhere. We cannot find the talent here and we're not going to open up offices everywhere. So we better get good at this. We so are talent, going to talent first, talent first, right? And we are going to, you know, like any strategy comes at a cost. So we're going to take the overhead of having to write down our processes and our handbook and having to like spend the extra 5% of time or whatever it's going to be for us to together curate our workplace, to together own this culture, this operating system of the company, if you like, to figure out how we can do things well in this environment. We had chosen to make that. Trade off, and you know what? This is what it's going to be. And we were nervous about it. Can we do this? But you know what? Just like anything, like, you know, you decide to make a new title, you're going to be nervous about are we making the right title? It's a right. similar thing. We have made a choice here. We're nervous. Can we make this thing work? But we made a very kind of, we sort of burned the boats in the sense that we are not going back. We are hiring talent everywhere. Um, we were initially sticking to the same time zone because we didn't want to, we didn't want to like complicate it any further at the time. Um, but And, and you know, we're just going to make this, we're going to try different things. Initially, we all worked with our cameras on, for example. That was a thing, you know, we had constant like music playing in the background and we had like little different ways of interacting. We were all on Discord or, and then at one point in time, we were all on Discord and then some of us hung out on Zoom together all the time. Then that, you know, we we, we kind of revised about, I think initially it was literally every month that we had like a meeting of, hey, how's it going? How does this feel? Is it good, bad, you know? Are you able to do your stuff and whatnot? We made it, I think, a real core tenant of, Figuring out our culture here was to make it a crowdsourced culture internally, where we would literally be obsessed with having meetings every week where we talk about how is it going, is this uh, this is rule set of this process, this culture that we're coming up with, is it working for you and is it working for us, and how would you change it, and how would you what what do you want to do different, and and we sort of through trial and error found a place which was quite stable. Like initially we made sweeping changes: cameras on, cameras off, Discord, then Zoom, then Zoom and Discord, and then whatnot. Um, and now we've ended up at a place where we still, about every six months or so, we have a meeting to look at: hey, how's our handbook? How's our operating procedures? Like, how does this? Is it working for us or not? But they're relatively minor edits, and a lot of the time, it's actually reductions. Like, so it's a thing that we thought used to think was really important. Yeah, no, don't, don't no need to do that anymore yeah. because you know it's just working because we found our way, found our way around it. So, like
1: uh, background music in in stand-ups we I do saw that. that i saw that i no. came up in the research that's that's like, the thing i've done that before it's just so the right way yeah it's so cool
2: and the thing is though that all of this carries an overhead it's not going to happen itself you have to designate a person that does this it's this person's responsibility to put on the music two minutes before, and then when everybody gets some, you know, gets into the meeting, says, "Good morning." This day in history, this thing happened, and that thing happened, and you know, and whatnot. And this is the month of cheese and the month of cranberries, <laughs> or whatever you know. And just like you know, to set the set the tone a little bit, and then I leave have the music it. on while you do this other stuff. But it's the thing is like you have to curate it. It's like yeah. there's an investment required, but it also creates certain cultural idiosyncrasies that I really believe in because it is us. Like that is how our company runs and it creates a pretty clear sense of identity and a pretty clear sense of again like of an operating system if you like for 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 the company that this is people it's easier to know what to expect because of certain routines work in, in certain ways
1: i have a synthesizer on my desk and i usually try to start out the meetings with just random noodling to set the vibe so i I totally, nice. I totally get that but it's it's a great way to kind of get everyone in the mood and and uh have it not be so serious because we're we are making video games
2: yeah it's true and i think actually part of all of these things also originated during the pandemic because we also were very honest about the fact that we all feel pretty anxious like about just the state of the world and the state of all of this and so we tried to bring in as much silliness into our meetings as we could there was a point where we had to there was like a this moment when the meeting was going to start where we because we used to have in the office this big gong where we like you know for our stand-ups we rang the gong and then but we didn't have the gong anymore. So, like, what are we going to do now? So, we had this rotating thing in alphabetical order of like, you had to come up with your way of doing the gong that day exactly on time. And somebody would, you know, would find a trumpet and you blow something on the trumpet. Somebody else would find some other ridiculous noise making instrument or whatever. Somebody would, yeah, play the synthesizer or whatever. But it's sort of, we try to find like ways of expressing ourselves and ways of just lightening the mood in different ways. Yeah. And I think, and that is critical. Much of that has stuck. Yeah.
1: It's so critical because even though there are life and death situations that can happen, you know, life and death in the, in the in company and product mm. sense anyway. Um, but having your team be together and feel good and to be able to laugh at that stuff, like even in the face of the impossible, yeah, that's what helps you get. No,
2: I think it's especially in the face of the impossible. Yeah. It's, and I think it's, there's something about the positivity and the psychological safety of, you know what, we're like a, you know, we're we're whatever a band of pirates, we're a set of folks who are genuinely trying to do this. And yeah, the odds are, you know, it's, it's difficult. These things are difficult. Yes. You know, it's the world's who knows where the world's going to, but at least we're going to have fun while we're doing this.
1: Completely. Thing. Yeah. If you lose sight of that, then that's where you get that, like those thousand yard stare projects and, yeah. uh, and people just yeah like kind of mentally checking out. And yeah, that, that's
2: it. I think, I mean. I think we have done an okay job at constantly evolving in this regard though i think the minute that you think you've figured this out in terms of remote work i think that's the that's when it gets dangerous so i am still i mean we're now north of 100 people um so obviously our processes have evolved also too because we can't do stand-ups with everybody all the time as as a result so we still have three all-company meetings a week and we try to make them very very efficient and minimal time consumption as fun as possible um but i am really like one of the things i'm obsessed with is culture and how do we help constantly evolve how we work and how do we like instrument if you like how we work you know we make games and we want to understand how players play the games and how we make them better like I I'm obsessed with trying to work out how to instrument the company in such a way that I understand where are we doing well and where aren't we like where is the employee experience at Super Evil like where is it good and where isn't it good and how can we make it better so um,
1: yeah a lot of that a lot of that came up in the research it's very clear that that's important to you
2: yeah I mean it, I mean it's it's sort of our our, our if you like mission as a company is to create the very best shared gaming moments, just because we all love multiplayer gaming moments in general. We think the world should have more of them. There's a loneliness epidemic around the world. Like people should, you know, people should play more together. That's that's, what you want to do. That's come
1: up a lot at this dice. It has, right. It's pretty interesting actually. And not, and, and, and like, haven't really heard a lot about it. I mean, you hear a lot about it, but like, it's really been, people are talking about it this week,
2: you know, it is. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's, it's interesting from from our point of view like those are the gaming moments we want to build but from a vision point of view, into the kind of company we want to build like we want to build the very best home for the best talent in the industry that want to work in a distributed game company so it's a really clear marching order right I mean it's like yeah we want if we want to be the best home we better build the best home right so and that means trying to constantly evaluate the experience that people are having and and try to react to it and try to work out how do we how, how do we improve? How do we constantly have this process in place where we gather experiences and gather data and try to understand how can we get better in the areas where we are weak? and How can we keep the areas where we're strong? And how can we perpetuate a culture? And it's hard. Like, perpetuating any culture when you're growing fast is, is difficult, even in an office setting. And in a, in a remote setting, it's just extra difficult. And that's why I'm obsessed
1: with it. Yeah, but if you want to have those moments of connection have people have moments of connection in games mm. you have to have that vibe at 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 work too well, yeah you, you, you would think right
2: yeah I mean, I, yeah i mean in that so the good news when we all do play a bunch of games together like i mean both we play the games that we make but we also play other games together right and i think that that games as a form of togetherness is is important to us as human beings as well as to us as game makers
1: yeah i've had some of the best experiences in my career have been working at smaller companies um, focus on multiplayer games where we're all playing the game together. Mm. And it, it is, those two things just roll over each other and it comes out in the game. And then the amazing stuff that happens in the game feeds the culture of, of the team and the studio and the company. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable when that happens and it's addicting also. Mm. And you, you know, when you if you have had those experiences and you go to another situation where you might not have those it's it's hard to look back on on those good situations where where those things happen organically
2: yeah and it's true and I've sort of have the belief for a long time that g- game making is collective art, and there is no way that you can like an art is an expression of like your state of mind in lots of different ways, and there's no way that you can collectively come up with a great experience for players if you're not somehow having a great experience while making it but some, there has to be some reflection of it somehow. That, that And that's why it, I feel like it's in a physical office setting, you can judge the vibe of what's happening, <laughs> like just by walking around a little bit, you can see like, are people looking happy or are they kind of, are we down for whatever reason? Do we need to like, you know, do something? In a distributed company, on the other hand, it's much harder, so we try to construct all of these sort of mechanisms of connection between people but also between like where various anonymous feedback and question asking channels and 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 also instrumentation around like how people are feeling and their promoter scores and all, all sorts of things in order to try to figure out like how do we how how are we feeling at any one time and yeah. to make sure that we're kind of bringing keeping up our our spirits if that makes sense.
1: I have a note here taking advantage of of virtual tools to fill in the gaps yeah right so w- what are the things that you guys do specifically to kind of measure and support you know how is the team health
2: yeah so i, I use. i mean there are many different pulse survey tools that um sometimes i kind of run by hr departments at big companies that you know feel like they're at the chore sometimes uh we use one called office vibe um i use it it's like my main tool of understanding how we're how we're doing and i'm I always, like we do, uh, we do again about every six months, we do a bigger company review where we're like, because we get, Office Vibe is an ongoing, every two weeks is a pulse survey and they ask various questions based on various things and you, like, it scores the company on like, you know, how we're doing in various departments, across various teams and, and whatnot. It's all anonymous unless people want to put their name on a piece of comment and whatnot. We respond to everything, literally every single message that anybody writes on Office Vibe anonymously either I will respond or one of the senior management will, 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 will respond and we will all see it. When we have a meeting, a kind of management meeting every two weeks, uh, it's one of the per agenda items, like what's been coming back from Office 5 in the last couple of weeks, how we're doing on scores, how we're doing on feedback, like where are the pain points. Um, so that's one way in which we use it. The other way is every six months, we do a bigger company review where I tell everyone, listen, I'm going to share all the results from Office Vibe like in, in, a, in two weeks' time. Please, please, please fill your surveys. Normally, you get maybe 50 60% in any particular two weeks right. of people to actually do, do it. And you know, you kind of nag, and then you get a little bit more, and then you don't nag, and you get a bit less. But then I say, like, look, we really want participation like north of 90% or whatever, just so it's really, really representative, so we can look at this together. And then we literally look at the, all the scores and results together um, as a company, all of us, and we look at look we're scoring well with trust with manager that's good you know maybe we haven't recently maybe the eu time zone has reported lower happiness scores than the north america time zone for example that's bad like right? i mean we want to be a great home for everyone everywhere what does that mean maybe we aren't doing so well on time zone related things what, what do we think what shall we do right so that like um i think one of the secrets of well secrets very very deeply kept secrets but one of the important parts i think of culture building is to make it a shared effort and if you can share the scores of this sort of thing and not sort of have it like the HR department ingest everything right. and then decides how to improve morale, yeah. instead share the scores and make it a shared discussion of Hey, how can we? We can do breakout groups and discuss how can we, what's going on with time zones and and how could we come up with some you know some uh, initiatives to to fix it, and then we can see six months later or three months later or whatever we want look back and see hey, did that work and what was that was it good? Um, so that's been like our that's been one important tool there's also a lot of other things we do like we do a kudos board once a month where we create a we do like a one-hour meeting of people just are able to write a little sticky note that expresses kudos and thanks to somebody in the company and it's an entirely sort of peer-to-peer sort of process but we we we're all there it's like a town hall we play some music you know we allow people to celebrate each other's work and express gratitude for what they're doing and it's been, It's become, and we always have one of the artists, you know, it's kind of coloring in all the various things. It's become quite a, quite a soulful sort of beat for us. that's so cool. Yeah. It, and it's one of those, like, it's really nice to, and it's also a way to celebrate work that goes unseen sometimes because you don't always see all the amazing stuff that everybody's working on. It's a really great reminder for me. It's one of my favorite moments in the month because just hearing all the really cool stuff that's happened, not through the, the kind of words of some team leader, but actually a peer, that points out somebody else doing an amazing work, you know, doing amazing work. It's really cool.
1: So how does that, how does all that, um, positive culture work and process translate to, um, new hires and like people looking, you know, I might want to join this company. Um, because I know, um, processes like that, if they're, um, you know, if they're, publicly stated that's a huge um positive drawing point Mm. for people i'm sure you get um people wanting to work at your company because of those efforts plus the um remote and distributed nature like how does that all play together when you're building you know the perfect team
2: well i mean hardly perfect we're just trying to be ever better right we want to strive toward the north star of being the best home which means that we just need to improve every day um we've what we've tried to do um, is we always feel like if we find a way to just kind of share our stories as developers and how we kind of find our everyday life, it's helpful. So we, we try to, whether it's do little posts or little pictures of or welcoming our new joiners or sharing little tidbits about either how we work or what we do that we can hopefully reflect externally a little bit of who we are inside. Um and we try to do things like making our, like our handbook is public and we make a revision, we make a revision publicly because, you know, if it's on the web, it must be real, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> right, right. But but it's also like it's a, um, we as a leadership team just take like full, 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 full ownership of this stuff. And we try to do our very best to reflect our values and who we are externally. Not always easy though. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, there's so much content out there that trying to reflect your values and you know what it is that you do to new joiners or to prospective new joiners is actually not the not the easiest thing always i think we are getting better at it and also these days um we do try to get large parts of the company at least together physically every six months um in such a we just in fact next week we have a big get together in london for folks in europe and some senior folks in the us and then we're hoping to do the same in reverse in in uh in the us around march time um and we um we try in these moments of togetherness also to like celebrate the fact that a physical connection is also a thing um and try to take as many pictures and share them and 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 so on but i would say that figuring out how how to reflect like truly our values not just through the products that we make but also through like our external communication and everything else is still something very much work in progress from from our, our 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 point of view but still like my main focus is always how we perceive internally because if we can create an internal perception of ourselves and an internal player like player employee experience if you like that is good and improving at all times where people feel agency and where we build this thing together because it's like one of the cool things when you get to build a company is you get to build the company you want to work for right? I mean, right that's like one of the privileges of it yeah and if we can do that together and do a good job at that then In in some ways, they will come, if that makes sense. I very much believe in that in game making as well, that if you can create a great experience, even if it is for a subgroup of your core players, then it is much, much easier to grow from there than it is to kind of try to be everything to everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with everything you just said. Like, it's so so much different from the kind of, let's do a post-mortem in two weeks after we finish the game that we've been working on for two and a half years, and then those things are never fun and mm. they're never they're hardly ever positive yeah. right and if you're if you're not if you're not checking in like regularly you know you're going to have a lot of like built up resentments because the project was it got mm. extended or we didn't have the support we needed and yeah. it be, those those things turn into a gripe session not really about like how can we be better and how yeah. can we make a game better next time but it is it's a
2: good point though because we of course I mean we do a lot of retrospectives and we try to learn a lot across the board and what we found is that the important thing that we actually bring external moderators in for our retrospectives because oh, cool. we we just feel it's more credible this way like we actually you know we're just I've
1: never heard of a company in the games doing that before. It's
2: it, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. I, because that way it's a, it's also like we show to ourselves that this is serious like this is important we need to learn from this and then we make we go out of our way to ensure that we communicate ourselves what the key takeaways were and how that got reflected or how that gets reflected in the next project or whatever it is that some, you know, you can't fix everything, but if you can fix some things every time, then we will constantly get a little bit better. So that over communicating of not just the retrospective itself, but the kind of outcomes of the retrospective has been something that we've, we've tried to put a lot of thought into.
1: That's very cool. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your passion for climate change. And, um, your efforts in outside of games and and also hopefully in games. Um, I, you know, I I read an article and watched some video of, um, you know, you're publicly calling on game companies to get involved in climate change. If you're doing well, when the world isn't doing well, it's on you to help out. I completely agree with what you're saying here. I'm often, asking and wondering why games and game companies aren't putting efforts into this seems like you're the only one talking about it you know what how how are you um you know how are you approaching this with other game companies as Mm. you being public about this um got people talking to you about it I'm sure everyone listening wants to hear about that because it's obviously a huge problem and we are fortunate in games to make a lot of money. And, you know, the entertainment we're providing for everyone is helping everyone get through their day, but there needs to be more days, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there needs to
2: be more days. I really agree with that. Yeah. With the DC climate. Yeah. So, um, so climate change is important an important subject to me. It actually it was when I I think it was the year I turned forty, which is already too many years ago at this point in time. But where I was thinking like I it really kind of hit me that you know what maybe I should maybe I should find some systemic way of every year thinking about doing something that perhaps gives a bit back one way or the other. I'd be very fortunate in in, in many ways and and um. I'm particularly interested in big systemic causes big big sort of existential or semi-existential issues for 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 humanity and how we can reduce some of the risk in in, in those areas and and it became I felt particularly stark um when the pandemic hit where you literally have game revenues going through the roof through at the, root. the t- at a time that the planet's having a particularly bad time or humanity's having a particularly bad time of course through the you know through the through the pandemic um but also through uh what seemed like climate change that actually isn't being perhaps addressed as quickly and as much as it, it it should be so that summer i decided to devote a bunch of time to looking at what kind of how can i best help while still running a game company and i felt at the time that ensuring like if you look at the root kind of of where does ultimately where do carbon emissions come from. And in particular this during that time, it was a time um when a lot of major policy decisions were about to be made in the US and also shortly in India and other places. Like the the biggest single leverage point for climate change at the time wasn't it's changes all the time, but at the time was very much Influencing key policy decisions in the U.S., in EU, in India, and in in other places. So that summer, decided to get together with a couple of other game company founders who had you know benefited from growth in games over time to to put together a matching donation campaign um, where we were hoping to raise a million dollars at the time for climate change. Which um, you did. Which we know we raised one point four million actually, something like this, which is which is really cool. Very very grateful for everyone to who, who contributed. But the important thing there was that a we can do this. We should do this. And and B, it's really important to research causes to try to work out, like, how for climate change, like, of course, as a game industry, we should endeavor to become carbon negative. We are not a very carbon footprint heavy anyway industry, and it's sort of a thing that we simply should do. And there's a bunch of initiatives actually ongoing that I'm hopefully contributing to in in different ways there. There are other game companies doing good things. Supercell is doing things. Space Ape games are doing things. Um, Many others are too. And I think we need more of a joint voice to talk about some of these things. And I also think that from that, it's not enough to just reduce carbon emissions and become carbon negative. I actually think for the future of humanity, it's also important to make sure that we research solar radiation management and research these kind of, if you like, temporary interventions in how much sunlight actually reaches the Earth. And there are, you know, whether that's through somehow brightening marine clouds or whether it's through small particles in the upper atmosphere or whatnot, which kind of just could buy us time. Because I yeah. think one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the things that game making really teaches you over time is that most things that can go wrong do go wrong. And most forecasts are wrong. No, no matter always. what, you know, yeah. no, matter, no matter how it's scientific you think. anyway. Exactly. <laughs> no matter how scientific you believe your model is for how your game is going to evolve or, you know, how, how many players are going to play it's or almost always if
1: you actually make the game you started out making like yeah no, yeah quite like mean. anyway so
2: like the, the world is chaotic this way right yeah and uh, every forecast model is just an estimation so when we say climate change you know two degrees increase or 1.5 degrees that is really just a probability spectrum of could be two degrees at some reasonable likelihood and at a slightly less likelihood could be three degrees and but there's like these tail end scenarios of five percent or ten percent of scenarios that could actually be much more than that and making sure that a we cut carbon as quickly as possible and then b that we have some science if you like some basic tools at our disposal that should the atmosphere warm much faster than we think it's going to then rather than not having tools available to block sunlight or some percentage of sunlight from reaching the earth we would at least research some of it and have perhaps some of those tools available and they are clearly a kind of worms like no one in their right mind wants to go and interfere with the upper atmosphere or interfere with how much sunlight reaches reaches the earth but there may be a time when that's the least bad option. So I think like having an open mind about at least developing the basic science around this stuff is important. So that's why folks contributing to this and us as a game industry, I think A, we need to cut our own emissions, right? Get get rid of those. B, I think we need to uh, also consider that those of us who are philanthropically active in this area also maybe help educate the world that this is a probabilistic future model and that those of us who worry about down downsides and plan B's and plan C's, maybe it's good to advocate for a plan B and a plan C here too.
1: I mean, is there a group that's kind of doing this that you're involved with that, you it, know?
2: In, I, I would say there's informally, a lot of folks in games care intensely about climate. Yeah. So there are, and there are various initiatives behind the scenes that I'm hoping I think become probably public Sometime soonish in this area, and I'm hoping to be involved in some of those and cool. and I think and hopefully it's translating from just individual companies doing individual things to hopefully companies doing
1: well things together it would be great to have companies founded with that part of their foundation, like mm. you know Tom's footwear is an example, yeah, right it would be great to have some game companies that that's part of their starting goal, or yeah. maybe we can get like VCs to make, uh, you know, you have to do X amount, you know, for climate change, or you can't have the money.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I just think so these are good thoughts. I think the 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 thing that's been complicated with games, I think with also some other industries, is, but just how do you account for carbon? Like, how do you work out where all the power consumption is, right? And how much is it really like, and also then, okay, so if we emit X, you know, tons of carbon, a year then how do we truly offset that in a way that is measurable verifiable uh, accurate and ultimately carbon negative so i think there are like there are certain steps and i think some of the initiatives going on behind the scenes is trying to find like a standardized way to look at this so that you can you know you can sort of make a verifiable claim if that makes sense in yeah. terms of truly what do you need to do to be carbon negative because i do think that uh, as, as an industry a we're fortunate that our emissions aren't that high so this shouldn't be a very hard thing to do and b most folks I know have their heart in the right place on this, and they really do want to contribute.
1: Well, I think that's amazing that you're doing it, and I I hope more people get involved. Um, this was a super fun conversation, um, really interesting. I really love talking to you. We didn't get to talk really about Rebel Moon or Netflix. I'm, you probably can't talk too much about it anyway, but if you don't know, um, Super Evil, MegCorp's Making, uh a game based on the epic two-part um space opera by zach snyder uh coming out on netflix this year the movie this year
2: i do i don't actually know if they announced the timing of the movie yet but it's very it's soon i saw december but maybe. yeah maybe yeah, it, next it, it year. May be, yeah it may be it may be um yeah, yeah so no we are, we are- Super psyched about that. We are very excited about that collaboration. It's a big project for us and, and and yeah, we're excited about it. We're in addition to that also working on a big unannounced AAA console, PC, every possible platform under the sun game, you know, coming out much, much later this decade that we are also excited about. It's a lot of things, a lot of things going on. We try our just very best to try to hopefully build really great games and hopefully build a really good company.
1: In the process. Well, uh, it seems like you're on the right path and uh, hopefully we can do another one of these next year and talk about all that other stuff that we didn't get to today.
2: Sounds great. I appreciate
1: that. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, man. Cheers.
2: Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.